Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Steve Tendon. Based in Malta, Steve is the founder of Chain Strategies and a senior executive management consultant, speaker, and mentor who works with multinational knowledge work organizations to create high-performance teams and business environments. Steve's research and consulting work specializes in the use and adoption of new technologies, particularly blockchain. Amongst his other projects, Steve was part of the team that devised Malta's national blockchain strategy, which I'm looking forward to hearing about in this interview. You can read his blog, The Tame Flow Chronology, at chronologist.com slash blog and learn more about his work generally at his website chronologist.com and you can follow Steve on Twitter at Tendon. Steve is the author of a number of books on LeanPub including The Essence of Tameflow, Breakthrough Organizational Performance Innovation and Tameflow Patterns, How to Design Organizations that Flow and uh, unpublished so far on LeanPub, The Book of Blockchain Strategies. In this interview, we're going to talk about Steve's background and career, professional interest, his book, his books, and at the end, we'll talk about his experience using LeanPub to self-publish. So thank you, Steve, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Hey, Len, it's a great pleasure to be here with uh, LeanPub, which, uh, as you said, I've been using for publishing a number of books. The first one was in 2013, if I remember correctly, my first Tame the Flow book, uh, and uh, I think I need to thank LeanPub for making it possible at all. Yeah, well, thank you very much uh, for uh, being such an early adopter. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about maybe where you grew up and how you got interested in the first part of your career, which was in software engineering, I believe. Yes, that is that is correct. Uh, in the in the prehistory of this uh, field, uh, the previous millennium, I was actually a software engineer. Um, talking of my origins, I was born in Sweden, and uh, even as a kid, I was traveling quite a bit with my parents. I went to school in South Africa and uh, Italy, and then when I started working, I spent some time in California and Texas. And then uh, professionally, I've been uh, doing assignments, consulting assignments uh, all throughout Europe, from uh, Belgium to Poland, Spain, UK, Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland, uh, you name it. It's been quite uh, quite a ride. Um, I started uh, um, quite remarkably, I would say, my software engineering career in the Credible Borland International, the makers of Turbo Pascal, uh, already at the time when you had DOS, not even Windows, and uh, that that experience actually uh, shaped my entire professional career. Um, Borland uh, was one of the most productive software engineering organizations ever and uh, once I got out of Borland I I was um, always disappointed at uh, how sluggish the other companies were and that got me like uh, into the the mindset of figuring out what was it that made uh, software engineering and later knowledge work um, performing or uh, uh, or not I can go more into more into those details if um, if you wish but uh, to continue answering your your question of my my background and my career um in uh, in 2006 more or less i switched over completely from from software engineering to management consulting i would believe many of my former software engineering colleagues would say it's a software engineer gone bad but you know sometimes you have to take these 
these pivots in your life and uh, and that turned out to be quite uh, an interesting uh, uh, evolution uh, in uh, in my management consulting career I went on studying why certain organizations are more performing than others and as you mentioned uh, in, in in the start here I also considered the impact of emerging technologies on on how organizations can can do can become better at what they are doing uh, not only operationally but also in terms of uh, business uh, models and, and ways of generating uh, uh, value and in that context I came across uh, the blockchain actually I was aware of the Bitcoin since the very early start 2010 more or less but was never really convinced and with uh, no insight you might say well too bad because you missed maybe a huge opportunity but anyway in 2015 I came across the uh, uh, white paper of uh, Vitalik Buterin and uh, uh, realized that this thing of decentralized computation uh, would be extremely significant basically for the whole global economy um, and started working in uh, in that uh, in that area um, the year after I uh, uh, by happenstance, um, spoke to uh, to the Ministry of Economy of Malta at a conference. He was the keynote speaker, and uh, as it happens during the the small talk before uh, before the actual start of the conference, I was introduced. Um, I didn't quite know what to say because I didn't believe that my management consulting uh, experience would be of any interest to him. So I just. Uh, came up with this notion that, oh, uh, you know what, the blockchain would be great for, for a country. It will define uh, uh, the economy for the next 20, 30 years. And uh, that's how my uh, third career as a blockchain advisor actually started. I was called later and asked to, to draft the national blockchain strategy of Malta and uh, then was the strategy lead of the national task force. Um, the strategy was turned into laws. There are three laws in Malta that regulate this uh, uh, this sector. There is a fourth law upcoming, which uh, is uh, extremely controversial. It is about giving legal personality to decentralized autonomous organizations. Um, I believe that would, would uh, require a book in its own right to describe. And after that experience, I also ended up uh, presently actually um, advising the Republic of the Marshall Island on on uh, how to create a cryptocurrency with legal tender status. Thank you very much for that um, very uh, compact summary of such a varied career. Um, uh, you've given us a, a platform for a lot of things to talk about uh, for the rest of the interview. I wanted to ask you, uh, actually, this, this might sound a bit... Um, Funny, but what was the one thing that comes up co commonly on this uh, podcast is uh, the question of what was your first computer? Uh, well, computer is maybe a stretch because uh, um, I started with uh, the so called programmable calculators. Uh. My first programming experience was on a Texas Instruments SR56. You might have to Google that and, and uh, see what it was. It had 56 
uh, programming steps. That's why it was called 56. And uh, they couldn't do much, but you could do basic logic and, and looping. Uh, that's how I got into, into programming the first and the very first time. I was probably 11, 12 years so old at the time. And was that experience, you're the first person who's, who's, uh, for whom that was their first computer that I've spoken to. Um, was, it, was it a school experience or was it just something you were exploring personally? Well, as it happens, um, my dad bought me that uh, that thing <laughs> uh, as a as a uh, birthday present. I know it's it's funny because uh, my very first uh, experience taught me uh, a harsh lesson uh, because I was following uh, diligently the instructions that were written in the book. And I was typing in all these instructions, uh, these steps, as they are called, programming steps. Um, and it didn't work. It didn't work. Um, I, I got really frustrated to the point that I complained to my dad, you know, this thing you bought me doesn't work. And uh, he knew nothing about computers. And uh, he took me to the shop to to show the the uh, the seller that uh, no, the thing didn't work. And I went through everything. And this guy was a bit perplexed. He looked through all the steps and showed me, you know what, you, this step you did here, that is wrong. I had created my first bug. And it was so embarrassing because I took my dad to the shop. And, of course, he got upset. But, uh, you know, it was a good lesson because from that point onwards, I, I, uh, I was very careful. You know, anytime something didn't work, I thought maybe I've done a bug. I have to be more careful. It's a it's a really curious experience um, for those listening who may have never done any programming. Uh, a single character mistyped and everything breaks. And to have that experience on a calculator, uh, I can only I can only imagine. And so you you ended up uh, working. You you mentioned for Borland. What was it about Borland that made it so extraordinarily productive? Well, I have three chapters about this in uh, in the first book that i published with lean pump and tame the flow which now is like uh, retired because it uh, it was uh, um, taken up by j ross publishing and made into a real quote quote hardcover book um and uh, the uh, the point uh, of why borland was so productive uh, was studied quite deeply even at that time. Uh, you might know about uh, James or Jim Coplin, um, who uh, is one of the uh, current proponents of uh, Scrum patterns. Uh, at the time, he was working for AT&T, and he was studying um, all sorts of uh, software organizations to uncover why some were sluggish and why some were much, much better than others. And he came across the case of Borland, which, uh, which was extraordinary. In, uh, in any way, uh, he would uh, examine the, uh, the, uh, the work that Borland did it was a total outlier, far out to the right and, and uh, high up on all uh, on all the uh, uh, the charts. Um, eventually, Jim uh, came up with a way to to uh, uh, categorize what uh, what were the uh, well the uh, let's say features and attributes of these uh, of these uh, kind of companies. 
And uh, there are many, many aspects that come in, but you might want to look for his uh, book on, I think it was uh, Patterns of Agile Software Organizations or something like that. I, may, I might give you the right, the correct uh, um, reference uh, later. Sure. Um, it was a groundbreaking uh, uh, book because, um, uh, or not even the book, he, he actually uh, presented a paper at a conference which, which later became, became that, uh, that book. And um, that uh, uh, paper actually inspired um, Jeff Sutherland in, uh, in the making of Scrum. So uh, the Borland experience is uh, is in a way an antecedent of uh, of Scrum and uh, some of the things that you see in uh, in Scrum like the the role of the product owner or the the daily stand up ceremony come directly out of uh, of that Borland experience. Of course, of course, Jeff Sutherland was also inspired by um, by other uh, sources. Uh, from uh, from lean and and japan but the the role of uh, jim copley's study was uh, was fundamental in establishing uh, scrum and uh, what is happening nowadays in scrum where they are trying to define uh, patterns of uh, of uh, hyper productivity as they call them is a direct uh, outcome of uh, of jim's work he was studying borland in terms of patterns um, I myself have been using patterns ever since, and they are one of the um, key ingredients in uh, in my so-called tame the flow or tame flow for short, tame flow um, approach. Um, <clears throat> it's um, it's uh, fascinating. I think that that experience in Borland was inspiring Scrum and. And even uh, myself, I um, I have like the advantage that I was there. I was at Borland, so uh, in many ways I criticize quite heavily um, certain ways that Scrum has uh, evolved. Simply because I was in the field and uh, I can recognize what uh, what was like misunderstood or misrepresented in taking the practices of Borland into uh, into Scrum. I've got I've got now, a few questions to ask you about that, uh, about your, your yeah. tame tame the flow or tame flow approach um, a little bit later. Uh, and, and I'm really it's really great to hear about the, the you being there at the, the sort of origins of, of Scrum, which is for, for those listening, uh, an approach to software development, which, uh, you know, and this is a Steve probably doesn't know this, but this is a theme of the podcast is, you know, the software is eating the world. The world is built on software. Um, a lot of people might not know this, but you know the way software is built actually determines a lot about the world that we live in now. And so these processes are very important for understanding the products that we interact with every day. And so was it? Uh, I guess one of my one of the questions I was really looking forward to asking you was about the transition from stage one to stage two of your career uh, when you went from software engineering to management consulting. Was it? The thoughts that you were having based on your experience at Borland and seeing the theory around Scrum develop that led you to make the move from being a software engineer to being someone who was sort of sitting on top of software engineers? 
Um, it was uh, a number of uh, of um, events that happened in uh, in my uh, in my career. It started with the fact that uh, uh, well, I was working as a contractor, a software engineer for a company in uh, in Sweden, which. Um, uh, decided to to grow quite uh, substantially through through merger and acquisitions so i was um, involved in uh, in the uh, pre-merger due diligence of the acquisition targets and also in the like post-merger um once you've broken the eggs, you have to make the omelette. You know, get get the two or three organizations to uh, to work uh, together, and that's when I started to become aware of the fact that uh, uh, there are many ways uh, to uh, to produce software. And uh, at that point, I was not only concerned about performance and productivity as as such, but um, was looking more at the organization as a whole. How does it um, actually help or hinder the effective business outcome of software engineering and software uh, development? And of course, when you start looking at post-merger operations, when you have two completely different cultures, which uh, which might even be uh, in conflict and uh, in opposition, and you have to uh, make them work together, the kinds of, of problems are very different. You're no longer looking at code as such, but at, uh, at behaviors and uh, how people can, can come together and, and get along, notwithstanding that they might have uh, extremely uh, different opinions, backgrounds, experiences, and and so on. So that was like a stepping stone towards becoming a, um, a management consultant. Uh, then I must say, uh, I, I also had a little incident. I got some severe problems with my eyes, so I could no longer literally look at a screen for longer periods of time. And uh, of course, for a software engineer, now tell them not to look at the screen, and uh, and you can imagine how how uh, di- disrupting that that is. But long story short, I had to change my career and stop looking at screens and instead looking at people's faces. Um, and that's when uh, when I really switched into the management uh, consulting role, and that's where um, I started stepping away from all these uh, Agile, XP, Scrum, Kanban, all these software-based uh, uh, approaches and started thinking more about uh, uh, organizational performance and uh, learned a lot about uh, Lean and in particular about theory of constraints, which I am a great fan of and which I uh, in recent years see is being picked up for instance, very much or indirectly, but it is being picked up very much by the by the DevOps uh, community and the DevOps uh, DevOps movement, and I'm very pleased about that because it likes like brings together my perspective on on how to run uh, a business with uh, with um, 
these uh, contemporary uh, software engineering practices. Thank you very much for sharing all of those details. Um, uh, there's there's uh, so much to your story that it's kind of hard to know uh, what to what to dive into or or where to go next. Although I I do have to indulge in a probably a rather specific question. Uh, I used to be an investment banker myself, and I worked in mergers and acquisitions. And I was wondering what your experience was like working on the due diligence process. So for those listening, a due diligence is when basically imagine you were buying a house potentially worth billions of dollars and covering many square kilometers. And before you bought it, you wanted to look into, you know, everything about it, literally looking at the pipes, going inside the walls, looking into the insurance. What was what was the part of the due diligence experience for a, a merger that, that you were looking into? Well, uh, the uh, at that time, I believe that um, there were not many folks doing uh, software uh, m and it's it was like a, a an a nascent um, uh, in industry m and have been around for for ages but specifically those that have software engineering organizations as targets um, they started to become like uh, fashionable at uh, at that time we're, we're we are in the time frame of like between 2003 and 2007 um, and at that time, uh, the only thing I could think of as as a tool, believe it or not, was the uh, the capability maturity model CMMI, um, which in in uh, hindsight I realized maybe is not that a great uh, great thing. Then of course. Um, one cannot escape from you know, what are the objectives of the of the uh, acquisition. Um, many times it is a matter of uh, of growth, so expanding market uh, market share, um, and uh, many companies, uh, uh, for instance, former Computer Associates, which I think has changed name or. I don't know if it's gone gone away, but Computer Associates be, became a giant through that strategy. They bought companies and basically threw away the programmers, uh, but just kept the product and uh, and the market. Mm. Uh, in other instances, you might be interested in some core core technology, something that uh, it's it's cheaper to buy a company than to try to um, to uh, develop uh, on. Uh, on your own. In other instances, you are really interested in the brains, in the people who are doing the stuff because you know they are the best or they, they understand the domain best and uh, you want to have their brain power. Uh, so you want the entire team to, uh, to be on, uh, on, uh, on your side. So depending on what the, the uh, objective is, you will look into uh, into different things. Uh, if it's a market share thing, then it's primarily just marketing information. Uh, if it is a product that you're looking for, then uh, then you would probably do code inspections and try to figure out if there are any hidden traps in uh, in the actual software. Um, if it is the engineering team, you will look into the the processes, procedures, methods, practices, habits, uh, all these things that uh, uh, we could say, how we do things around here, how people are working uh, working together. So there are many, 
many angles uh, which you can take when uh, when talking about a software engineering M&A. Yeah, that's that's really that's really fascinating. I think a lot of people, uh, I mean, even even people who you know sort of run companies or buy companies might think that when you're when you're buying a software engineering team, you're buying a bunch of typists, but in fact, you're buying a bunch of brains and processes and mindsets and a culture. Um, and having to, it, it's so interesting to me to hear you talk about how you know when you're engaging in this process of evaluating an organization like that, you know, to go all the way from the very top level, from how it's sort of run to the actual code that's being written uh, must have been a really fascinating challenge. And so was it was it from this experience that you developed the, the Tameflow approach to organizational knowledge work, performance and management? Uh, in a way, yes. Um, or rather, uh, I, uh, I started helping uh, companies to... Um, to resolve their uh, their uh, their problems, and uh, um, some were were really were really nasty problems to have because uh, I I spoke about mergers and acquisitions, uh, but uh, like uh, one one case uh, in uh, in particular I want to mention was the uh, company. The group called Voltus Kluwer, based off Amsterdam, it's uh, it was originally a publishing company. Now it has become like an information um, provider to all sorts of uh, of industries. Well, at that time they had uh, um, acquired like 32 different companies. They had over 20 business units. They were across 11 countries, and uh, and you had. To get all of these uh, these uh, um, different cultures to uh, to work uh, together, so uh, um, I I managed to do that. But as I went to other companies and they were asking me, but what kind of method are you using? What kind of approach are you using? And uh, I didn't have a good reply. I knew what I had to do, but I couldn't like articulate or verbalize it or describe it or give it a label. So it was a bit embarrassing because it was like, hey, guys, just trust me. I, I know what I'm doing, but I can tell you what it is. <laughs> so I, I, I set out to, to, uh, to give myself like a, a good answer to that because I had collected so much material in, in studying this, this field that I thought it's time to, to make some order. So in, um, uh, I think it was 2010, um, I actually took uh, a year off and retired to a small island outside of Malta. It's called Gozo, tiny, tiny little island where uh, you can literally live in peace and no one will disturb you. And I started going through all my notes and uh, trying to give some structure to all my thoughts and that eventually resulted into the first book which I published with, with LeanPub and later in 2014 I thought well this this needs to be uh, organized even in uh, in a business sense so I I founded the first um, Tameflow company Tameflow Consulting um, and uh, and the name Tame well the the original title, Tame the Flow, became like Tame Flow as a brand. And that's 
that's how I I brand my my thinking and my methods right now. Tame flow. And uh, actually, I I was uh, looking at your Twitter feed yesterday, just preparing for this interview, and I came across a quote where you said, um, "Like Phlygia's taming the flow of waves on the river Styx, tame flow will tame the flow of energy through your organization." So was that was that story from Dante part of the inspiration for your the the name tame the flow? <laughs> Well, it it came really about by you know, synchronicity or happenstance. Uh, um, when I wrote the first book, I was searching for a, for a, a good cover image, and uh, I just came across this uh, computer artist who who had uh, this amazing picture, which now you see on the cover of all my lean pub published Tameflow books. Which represented exactly exactly Fijias and uh, and the river sticks. You see this man with an oar in his hand, taming the flow of the river with the waves uh, washing away underneath him. And I thought it was just so fitting that I I just took that that image and then I asked him, well, what is the story of this image? And he told me it's it's Fijias. <laughs> it is from Dante's uh, the uh, the Inferno of of Dante. So it was just so fitting. I I had to take it. And uh, one of one of the things I found um, really interesting reading about, uh, you know, originally tamed flow and now tame flow, uh, was um, the insight that you had that, uh, and I'm going to quote quote you back at yourself here, uh, that performance in the manufacturing world is easy to see and manage. End quote. This is something that's come up quite a few times. Uh, on this podcast with people that I've interviewed. Uh, the theory of constraints, I don't know if that's come up specifically, but a number of different approaches to organizational management have come up. Um, so Deming, for example, things like that, or people like that. And in particular, the idea that a lot of organizational theories are based on things you can see are not necessarily applicable to things you can't see, like knowledge work. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, I mean, I'm sure you have lots of thoughts on that topic, but how do you, how does, how does your tame flow approach deal with the fact that you sort of can't see the work that's being done in the same way in knowledge work that you can in manufacturing? Um, yes, that's a huge, uh, huge topic. Yeah, sorry for uh, being so general about it, but I imagine you can, you, you, <laughs> let's, you let's version. first, yeah. Yeah, let's first maybe uh, uh, define what is it that you cannot see, because uh, uh, most often uh, this this um, um, contraposition between manufacturing world and knowledge work uh, is very um, very limited, because you would look at at the widgets and gadgets that uh, that a factory produces, and you know that is visible, and many will say, well, you know, in in software we will we will try to visualize that. Kanban is an excellent example, but even the Scrum task boards where you use the famous yellow stickies and they represent something which you can literally see and literally move around the uh, the board. So you visualize, uh, you give a visual representation to uh, what uh, what is not um, was what is not visible. And most of the reasoning around knowledge work and visualization of work stops stops there. But I think that is just one dimension of things which are not um, not visible or mm, not even um, 
uh, of which the, the, the people in the organizations are not even aware of. Uh, so tame flow um, is the taming of uh, four flows. The one we just said about making stuff visible like on a Kanban board or a Scrum task board is what I refer to the operational flow. It's the workflow, how work flows through different parts of the organizations through different roles. There might be handovers, there might be stage gates, there might be integration points, depending on uh, how more or less agile you are, things will flow with uh, greater or lesser, uh, lesser speed. But there are other flows which are just as important, but which are even more invisible. Uh, the second flow I typically deal will, with is the financial flow. So how this stuff that you move around actually becomes money on the bottom line. Now this is very important because all of the approaches that are being used in the software space are, in my opinion, extremely weak on the financial side. Um, there might be some attempts at using, for instance, beyond budgeting, which is uh, an approach which I approve of, so to say. I even talk about it in uh, in uh, my book. Um, but it's still a long way to connect uh, to the general acceptance of um, of uh, finance figures in uh, in actually driving your uh, your operations, or vice versa, to have your operations. Um, uh, actually reflected in uh, in financial uh, financial numbers. Now, in the financial flow, I uh, will employ the techniques that come from the theory of constraints, which are known as throughput accounting, which is quite different from what normal accountants are accustomed to. But to make that long story short, the way operations uh, actually turn into financial results or the way Mm, top-level uh, decision, decisions are made uh, based on financial uh, numbers, which then become operations, is something that is invisible and that must be handled. The uh, third flow is the flow of information. And here we can learn a lot from information uh, design, but in particular, um, how you deliberately create um, feedback loops we all know that Scrum is a number of uh, iterations and loops, uh, but they have problems in their own right. They might be too frequent or too infrequent. They don't give the right signal at the right time. They might not escalate high enough in the organization to get the right kind of action with the relevant uh, information. So working on how information flows inside the organization, the, the building of the nervous system of the organization is also something that is entirely invisible and, uh, and that has a huge impact on how the organization will perform. And the fourth flow is what I call psychological flow. Uh, it's all based on the uh, studies of, uh, I don't remember how to pronounce the name, maybe you will check it up. I think it's Csikszentmihalyi. Csikszentmihalyi or something like that, the, uh, the Hungarian psychologist who studied um, flow states, individual flow states on 
what makes an individual uh, perform uh, in uh, in the best of uh, of his or her capacities. Um, when we look at organizations, we are interested in, in team or organizational flow states. And that might seem very far-fetched given how sluggish many organizations are and uh, how many, let's say, quote, quote, uh, people problem problems exist in organizations. But that kind of flow is entirely invisible. And um, if uh, the organization becomes aware of uh, how to trigger that kind of flow uh, in individuals, in teams, in units, and across the entire organization, it will uh, literally flow away. And just to give you a sense of uh, what kind of performance we're talking about, I want to refer back to Borland, because there is uh, an, none other than Jeff Sutherland that um, uh, recounts that when he was studying the papers from Jim Coplin, I mentioned at the beginning, uh, he realized that one Borland engineer was as productive, at that time they used the word productivity rather than performance, but was as productive as 50, 50 Microsoft programmers. So that means that one person could perform as much, could deliver as much as 50 people in a competing organization. Um, my, uh, my focus on hyper-performance has all been in, uh, in this direction to how can you replicate that kind of uh, uh, performance lever so that with a small organization, uh, you can really give a good fight and punch way beyond your weight. That, uh, that reminds me of something I read in one of your books where you wrote, what can replace procedures, processes, and automated algorithms when the workers know more than the leader? I'm not sure if it's exactly related to what you were saying, but the idea of someone who's so powerfully productive seems to me that it must be related to some extent to the idea that um, as a manager, you're dealing with people who are, who are better than you at what they're doing uh, and, and know more than you do. Yeah, that's that's also something extremely important, and it's uh, uh, related both to the to the flow of information and uh, and the psychological flow. There's a lot we can learn from military organizations, uh, especially the uh, the elite special troops, um, where you have this notion of um, of uh, uh, unity of effort without unity of command. Uh, or the notion of uh, leader's intent, like, hey, guys, capture that hill. It's, it's your problem. Come back once you're done. Mm. So you, the, the leader might express like an objective, an in, intention, and then the organization will have to figure out, or the unit will have to figure out the best way to achieve that. Um, if you do this, then, of course, you can avoid a lot of meetings. You can avoid a lot of micromanagement, avoid a lot of reporting. Uh, but there is one like uh, necessary element that must come into the picture, and that is what I call the uh, unity of purpose, or actually two, the, the pattern of unity of purpose and the pattern of community of trust. Uh, unless there is a very clearly defined uh, goal, and uh, I say this word mm, with uh, 
uh, a clear reference to the novel of Jarl uh, Goldratt, The Goal, which defined the theory of constraint. So unless you have a very clearly defined goal, all of this will never happen. It's like, uh, I mean, Len, you're in Canada, so there you play hockey. They do so in Sweden as well. Mm-hmm. And we don't enter the debate on which, which, which team is best, better, because then we will never end this podcast. Okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, in hockey, it's, it's uh, uh, a team that have just this idea, we have to put the puck into, into the opponent's uh, cage. Uh, it's, it's very clear. It's very clear what needs to be done. And anyone who, who has the puck uh, knows what he has to do. And in a high-performing team, there is no time to think. If things just happen, they are in this state uh, state of flow. Now, how does this relate to the organization and uh, and uh, the fact that uh, you mentioned how do you replace procedures? Um, at the first level, procedures are replaced by by software. Software are just an embodiment of procedures. They are a way of quickly making decisions in an automatic manner. But when it comes to the more, let's say, uh, high-level cognitive processes that go into creating the knowledge, uh, there is no way you can define that as a procedure. But if I am the CEO of a company and I have a team of engineers where even the junior engineer knows much more than me, than myself, there's a no, there is no way I can micromanage that. Any such attempt would, uh, would fail and uh, would basically alienate the highly skilled engineers. So wh- what is the, the uh, alternative? Well, it is to adopt what I call uh, mental models so that no matter what level of competencies or skills or your position in the company, whether it is a hierarchical position or it is like a, a, a power position acquired through seniority or through recognized skills and abilities, no matter what your position is, um, you, uh, you can agree that if that decision you are about to take is consistent with a shared mental model, it will not go against a similar decision taken by anyone else. So you're creating that thrust across the organization because all people involved will make decisions constantly at all levels at all times, which move the organization forward towards the goal. And that's when the, the, uh, the, top management, the CEO, can, can trust the organization to move forward. The, the uh, commander's intent is present. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting you say that. Um, when I was reading your books, preparing for this interview, I was reminded of an old um, analogy I like to give about um, the role that um, Oxford and Cambridge played in the British Empire, which was more or less to train young men so that they would all know exactly what each other would be doing under any circumstance. So, for example, you knew that at, you know, I don't know, 3 p.m., if you were on a boat in the Indian Ocean or if you were, you know, in a fort in North America, someone would be having tea. And, uh, you know, the idea of creating this kind of coherence in a culture means that 
people can be given a great deal of independence and latitude to act as long as you can trust that they're going to be operating in accordance with the same model. Yeah, that is that is correct. I mean, that's uh, exactly the point that uh, uh, the uh, the idea of having tea at three p.m. is uh, is in a way uh, a mental model. We we know that at that time point, something something uh, we expect that something is uh, um, is is happening, which means that I don't have to to make the call for for that uh, for that event, even if it's a trivial one like drinking tea, as you say, but it becomes like ingrained in uh, in uh, in the in the organizational habits that uh, that develop uh, from the sharing of a mental model. I'm sure we could talk about, I know we could talk about this a lot longer, but um, there are, uh, there's another stage of your career that I'd like to move on to. So we've talked a bit, <laughs> we've gone from your calculator and, uh, and, uh, and programming to this very high level uh, management consulting. Uh, but ultimately, you ended up working uh, now on uh, blockchain technology at, at sort of the national level of legislation, which is something I'm really interested in talking to you about. But before we do that, I'm curious. So you mentioned, you know, you're from Sweden, but you traveled a lot as, uh, as a child with your parents, and then you've worked in many different places as an adult. How did you end up in Malta? Um, simply because I had some uh, clients that uh, that had business here, so uh, I, I came down from Sweden and I just realized that uh, the uh, the weather, the sea, the food uh, was um, <laughs> was at another level. So I said, let's give it a try. Let's give it a try. Uh, maybe stay here for six months and. And, and test the waters. Well, I've I've been here for, for over thirteen years now. I'm still testing the waters. <laughs> yeah, it. Uh, I I watched an interview with you uh, on YouTube, uh, which I'll put, I'll put a link to it in the in the transcription of this interview. Uh, but you know, it, there's just this wonderful background of of sea, and you know, just you know, I think actually people walking around with drinks <laughs> just seemed like such a wonderful place. Um, on, on that note, uh, this is, this is a, just, just for, for a couple of minutes, a bit of a sideways question, but one of the pleasures of this podcast is that I get to talk to people from all around the world and ask them about things that they might be experiencing locally that the rest of us just read about in the headlines. But on the subject of moving around and migration, Malta is in the middle of the Mediterranean and it's an EU country. And I'm sure that I, I mean, I know from the news that Malta has its own experience of people trying to get there from North Africa. What's the what's the experience of that like kind of on on the ground? I say this as someone, you know, I mean, I've I've moved around a fair amount myself, but you know, between between me and the rest of the world here in Canada are two oceans, well, three oceans and the United States. What what's it like to have this sort of imminent issue of people trying to to get in? Um, well, Malta has. Um... Uh, always been because of the geographical position has always been uh, like at cross crossroads uh, of different uh, different uh, um, geopolitical uh, interests so the whole history of malta is is uh, a, a continuous um, uh, change of uh, of population coming from different uh, Places starting from the Phoenicians to the Romans, the Greeks, the Turks, the the Arabs, uh, Napoleon, uh, the, the the British Empire. It's an ongoing uh, story. So Malta, as such, is uh, um, very has always been very open and welcoming of uh, 
uh, of um, foreigners. Now, of course, in the current um, historical situation, uh, there is uh, 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 clearly a pressure from uh, from countries in North Africa. Uh, many people want to reach reach Europe. Um, Malta has fared uh, quite quite well because um, most most uh, of these migrants uh, actually want to uh, arrive in Europe, not in Malta. But having said that, the the, uh, the pressure is visible. Um, at the same time, the uh, economic success of Malta, even the financial services, the iGaming, and lately, of course, the blockchain uh, sectors, have also um, significant, significantly increased the the um, inflow of uh, of expats from from all sorts of uh, uh, origins and uh, and in particular in the case of i gaming there are uh, huge communities uh, that have grown in the last few years uh, if we take for instance the swedish community when i moved down we were probably two or three hundred people and now i think the population is um, uh, in the order of 8,000 uh, units from uh, from Sweden or thereabouts. So it's been uh, a tremendous um, growth. Keep in mind that the population in Malta is like 450,000. It's it's very small. It's the most populated island um, or, or country in uh, in Europe in terms of, of dense population density. Uh, connecting a few dots, uh, what is interesting is that Malta also recently proposed, uh, came up with a proposal on how to manage these uh, uh, migration flows, to use the word of tank flow, mm -hmm. these migration flows with, uh, uh, with the blockchain, applying blockchain technologies to, to help with, um, for instance, uh, digital identity management, to help with uh, uh, disbursement of uh, of uh, uh, social benefits um, uh, and uh, and so on. So uh, the uh, the um, uh, the problems that that uh, are arising are also being addressed by thinking in new ways of using technology to address them. And how did iGaming become such a prominent industry in Malta? Well, uh, Malta had already the experience of financial services, but in the case of iGaming in particular, um, the fact is well quite similar to what is happening nowadays with the cryptocurrencies and the blockchain. Uh, the fact was then that that iGaming uh, was uh, was not regulated in uh, in other jurisdictions. Take Sweden, for instance. iGaming was. Uh, uh, it was not illegal in uh, in a strict sense, but uh, it can only be exercised by a state monopoly. So, if any Swedish company wanted to provide iGaming services, uh, um, they could not uh, they could not do it. Um, so, Malta took the opportunity to to regulate that sector, and of course, ran into a lot of uh, of um, heat and controversy. Uh, but eventually it became uh, accepted practice and many other countries followed. Many other countries regulated iGaming to the point that now even Sweden in 2019 uh, is, uh, is allowing uh, companies to set up iGaming operations.
So Malta was like leading uh, leading this uh, this trend, and uh, I would say through uh, innovation, um, not in terms of technology, but innovation in terms of legislation, uh, by giving legitimacy to a whole sector, um, they created an industry, and now the other countries are following suit, which, by the way, is creating a problem for Malta because now those companies that came down here from Sweden, for instance, um, might possibly move back to Sweden. So it would be a loss of business for for Malta. And that, um, that experience has also been one of the things that um, have inspired the... the uh, this initiative of uh, regulating cryptocurrencies and uh, and blockchain technologies. As of today, I think Malta is one of the few countries where cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies are uh, are fully fully regulated. So that that thank you very much for that great explanation and and segue into the next part of the interview where we're going to talk about your experience helping develop Malta's um, national digital innovation strategy. Um, so. As I understand it, uh, you were at a conference um, and you were introduced to a keynote speaker who happened to be a sort of cabinet minister, I think minister for the economy. And in a, in a very brief encounter, you convinced him or her that blockchain was very important. And it was from that sort of momentary chance encounter that you ended up working on the national blockchain strategy for the country. Yes, that is correct. It was very much by happenstance. Um, I, I had like uh, an elevator pitch moment and uh, and uh, um, gave this uh, this vision for for a country built on on blockchain. Um, I was called uh, to the office of the minister. Uh, Shortly thereafter, maybe just a couple of weeks after, I had to explain this in more in more detail. And uh, at at the end, I was asked, "Can you can you draft a national strategy for this?" And I said, "Yes, of course. Let's go." <laughs> I think you describe in your book that there was there there was a little bit of a moment uh, before you said yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I was a bit nervous, but okay. <laughs> The long story is just like that. <laughs> it's a big, it's a big thing to be asked all of a sudden by a cabinet minister. Can you develop a national strategy for this emerging technology? Um, but you did, uh, and uh, it's a, it's a fascinating story. I mean, um, uh, you know, for those, I'm, I'm, I, I guess, I guess we're all assuming that um, uh, anyone listening to this this podcast knows more or less what blockchain is and understands that when we talk about distributed computing, we're talking about the Ethereum blockchain. I, I actually, uh, anyone interested in, in sort of a from the bottom up explanation can, I would refer you to an earlier podcast where I interviewed someone named Don Tapscott, who along with his son sort of wrote a book on blockchain uh, technology. He gives a pretty good explanation. But uh, so the one, one thing that I think that uh, often gets lost in the discussion is people get sort of preoccupied with the, the technology, but you brought up the the importance of, of regulation. And so your task was to be part of a team to help Malta be ahead of everyone else on the regulation with respect to not just not just sort of cryptocurrency, but blockchain technology and distributed autonom autonomous organizations and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Well, uh, yes. Um, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, I, I was looking at emerging technologies for the sake of, uh, of uh, allowing organizations to perform better. And um, the focus was on blockchain technologies, technologies as such, which uh, of course include even cryptocurrencies. So this was, keep in mind, in 2016. Uh, ancient history. And the whole, <laughs> ancient history, especially in, in blockchain years or yeah. crypto years. Um, 2016 was before the, the uh, amazing uh, Bitcoin boom and the ICO explosion of um, 2017. Um, so we, we had already done all the groundwork and we were still uh, setting things up when, uh, when these two phenomena uh, happened. Uh, other jurisdictions reacted in, uh, I would say, in panic mode and some were extremely quick to sort of um, come out with uh, rules and regulations but limited to uh, cryptocurrencies cryptocurrencies and ICOs as a sort of uh, regulation of financial instruments. Um, that uh, uh, knee-jerking uh, reaction uh, made them come, up, come out with regulation before Malta. So um, we were exposed to this criticism. Now you're talking about a lot of regulation, but you're, you're way behind all others because you're not presenting anything. And the reason was that our strategy was uh, much, much deeper and much more far-fetching. Uh, far so once the, the uh, whole thing uh, became uh, evident, we, we had not one law, but, but three laws, only one of which was the equivalent of what the other countries had, had done up to that time, dealing with cryptocurrencies and ICOs. The other two laws were building up uh, the... Uh, uh, regulatory framework to deal with uh, uh, blockchain technologies or more specifically, or rather more generically, uh, 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 to what we termed like innovative innovative technology arrangements because the, the whole uh, idea was to have a focus on innovation, notwithstanding what kind of technology that um, that innovation uh, uh, took form with. So it could be a blockchain, it could be a DLT, it could be IoT, it could be AI, and uh, and who knows what other acronyms will come out in the uh, in the future. Yeah, I confess uh, I don't know what, what DLT is. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it, sorry, oh, please go ahead. Yeah, DLT is the distributed ledger technology, oh, okay. so it's like okay. block, blockchain um for corporations, uh, private blockchains, basically. Yeah, just to, just to uh, give just to give people a bit of a, a a sense. I mean, when you you know you just started expanding to AI and the Internet of Things, um, so people understand the the really fundamental legal challenges that Steve is is talking about. Um, imagine a company that is basically a program uh, running itself, undertaking transactions. For example, you can imagine someone creating a decentralized autonomous organization that is running a fleet of self-driving vehicles and then it plugs into an electricity network and its vehicles plug into an electricity network and need to pay for some some electricity 
what legal status do you give to the organization running that if it's some software? Or what, how, how do you manage the transactions that it's undertaking? And, and, and very, very fundamentally, what happens if it goes under? Who's responsible? Can you, can you attribute responsibility to an organization that has no owners? Yes, these are exactly the kind of uh, questions that uh, that we've been addressing here in Malta, in particular uh, this notion of uh, having a technology which is uh, um, autonomous, but even worse, it's, it's even self-sufficient, mm-hmm. um, is the object of a fourth law which is currently being, being discussed. And this fourth law uh, aims at at uh, recognizing uh, legal personality to these um, autonomous uh, entities or autonomous innovative technology arrangements, if you want to use the whole the whole uh, wording. But the uh, the point is exactly what you said. It's uh, the software is becoming so uh, uh, pervasive and uh, and capable that it can effectively. Uh, replace an entire organization and as a matter of fact the the very bitcoin protocol and algorithm and network is the first real instance of this because we we know that um, the bitcoin protocol like disintermediates the the uh, clearing and settlement houses and anyone else who was in the middle of uh, transactions happening between between uh, two two individuals or two endpoints, um, so effectively this protocol has uh, replaced uh, maybe a number of companies and organizations. It's even more perverse because the Bitcoin protocol, as you might know, is being upheld by a network of computers owned by people who install the Bitcoin software and run it, and that ensures that the Bitcoin network is is always functioning. And why do they do that? Because they get rewarded. They they are the so-called miners. They create the Bitcoins and get get a cut, so to say, of that uh, creative um, effort. So not only do we have a piece of software that has replaced a human organization, but it is actually employing humans it's like backwards it's not humans owning software it's software who is having humans on its uh, its payroll now i say that the bitcoin protocol is uh, very simple notwithstanding the uh, let's say the complexity of the uh, cryptographic algorithms which uh, which um, underlie it but the the, uh, functionally, the Bitcoin uh, protocol is very simple. It moves a number from one wallet to another, like assigning a number from one variable to another. It's conceptually, it's not a big, big deal. But even so, we see this fact that it is replacing uh, a number of human organizations and it is employing humans as, as workers. Now, imagine that instead of just moving a number from uh, one wallet to another, this sort of software does uh, operations which are much more sophisticated. You gave the example of a software that has a fleet of self-driving cars and needs to buy electricity and has to pay for the service. Um, well, at that level of complexity, 
we being software engineers, now we can go back to my very first experience when I got that SR56 and created a bug. We know that bugs will happen. And then the question is, if these bugs affect uh, us humans, who is responsible? Now, in the United States, there is this notion um, which is heavily uh, promoted by some lawyers and even some, some regulators that the software engineers should be held like liable. They are responsible. They, they are performing a fiduciary function towards the, uh, let's say, the consumers. But what they don't consider is that uh, uh, one of the key attributes of a blockchain is that it's, uh, I say it's like an elephant. It remembers everything forever. Uh, so uh, uh, a software that is put on a blockchain will be there forever. And uh, we have this wonderful opportunity of creating the eternal bug that once created will never go away. Um, and what's worse is that this software will persist and live beyond the lifetime of its original creators. So even if you want to go after, so to say, the, the software engineer that created the bug and uh, according to the lawyers acted irresponsibly, he might just not be there, but the software is still there. It's still providing its services. It's still paying its uh, its uh, uh, employees, so to say, um, and it will get paid by people or other pieces of software that that uh, benefit from its services. So, what do we do if this entity, this new entity, is somehow harmful? That is the key question we are trying to address. Yeah, it's, it, there's so many dimensions to this. Thank you for that great explanation. I mean, the the you're reminding me of something. I I had a an old colleague who worked for the Bank of England, and when I was in my investment banking days, he said the one thing you guys don't have to handle is what happens if you fail. <laughs> um, uh, and this is what the what the regulators are important. One of the reasons they're so important and one of the reasons that actually, although it's you know, sort of regulation often seems sort of dusty, it's actually incredibly challenging and creative work because you have to, if you're going to be a good regulator, you need to be ahead. And you don't just need to be ahead of managing risks, but you need to be ahead managing opportunities. And so how do you create, for example, uh, you know, a place where someone can conduct a utility token kind of ICO and feel comfortable that they're not going to have basically the cops knocking down their door the next day uh, is actually a really, a really important problem. Um, uh, there's, there's, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about this, but uh, I wanted to sort of take the opportunity to, to bring it down to a very human level. Um, uh, you talked a little bit about, you mentioned digital identity management earlier. Um, yeah. And from the, the, actually the same interview I mentioned earlier that I watched on YouTube preparing for this interview, you talked about how one of the experiences that, people who are migrants from catastrophes can have, for example, from Syria, let's say you're a doctor in Syria, war breaks out and you flee and you end up in a new, new country and you say to the officials that you encounter, I'm a doctor and they go, how do, how do we know? And this was in the context of talking about how, you know, blockchain technology can be used to basically um, give people credentials that can be confirmed publicly without question. And so this 
this is something that's talked about with respect to sort of property ownership, for example. I believe in Malta, there's initiative. There's an initiative with respect to uh, students' uh, accomplishments, like their diplomas or degrees, being publicly recorded in this way. And when I, when, I, when I heard you talking about this, it actually reminded me of a very sort of romantic story from my own family's past where a bunch of my relatives were, they were, during the Second World War, they were sort of German-speaking Mennonites in Ukraine, and they ended up being displaced under the control of the German military in Germany somewhere. And at one point, there was, you know, a lot of bombing going on in the area where they were, and a great aunt of mine managed to get out of the area where they were being held and melted into the crowd. And because she could speak German, uh, she went the next day to the bombed out um, records office and said, hey, I'm from here, but my records have been destroyed in your records office. I need a new birth certificate. Uh, And because she was a fluent German speaker, she got away with it. And then she got her, her new birth certificate. And then on the, with, because she had that, she then convinced a bunch of German officials that the people they thought were Ukrainian captives were actually German citizens. And it was on this foundation that they all eventually managed to get out of Germany and move to Canada. And so it just made me think about, you know, there's there's sort of two sides to this coin of having your your identity out there in public, something that, that can't be changed because it's confirmed by this blockchain technology. Uh, right. I mean, you raise, uh, well, it's an, it's an amazing story, story you are telling, telling there. Um, but we should also then uh, take into consideration that um, if this technology is going to be, uh, let's say, uh, have mass adoption with uh, the appropriate um, provisions for uh, for privacy protection uh, then uh, then uh, uh, the um, let's say the, the the negative scenario that that you were hinting at would uh, could be could be prevented because we have this notion uh, which maybe you have not heard of but it's uh, the notion of self sovereign identity or more generically self sovereign data yes you can have your data on on the blockchain it's uh, it is there and uh, and uh, uh, present forever whether it is the real data or a, or a hashed pointer to some other storage there are many architectural questions that uh, like software engineers and software architects would would love to delve into, but conceptually, your data is on um, on on a blockchain, um, but you have the literally you have the keys to accessing it and uh, to make that data uh, available to other uh, other third uh, third parties. Now, there are many complicated schemes that can be built on top of this. So you might have, uh, uh, let's say, different uh, identities or different personalities, depending on what context uh, you, uh, you need to use that, uh, that information. Uh, and uh, you can also have uh, uh, information that becomes more valuable as more, the more it is used. For instance, with um, uh, self-sovereign identity, um, institutions could uh, could attest that uh, that that information is uh, is correct, and uh, you would be collecting these attestations like 
like uh, um, pearls on a, on a string. And the more attestations you have, the more credible your your uh, uh, identity uh, becomes. But it's still yours. You you are in control of uh, uh, who may uh, may access that information and this might also be the uh, the disrupting element that uh, that uh, might put out of business this whole uh, um, uh, recent uh, no success of surveillance of the surveillance economy with the facebooks and googles and uh, and all the big the big uh, um, it companies cloud-based companies who are tracking every single little movement you're doing in your in your life so there, there are, as all technologies there are there are pros and cons there are uh, new opportunities that come about and at the end of the day it's uh, it's up to us to to invent the best use we can make out of this opportunity uh there's i mean there's multiple multiplying podcasts of, of topics that we could talk about uh obviously but before just before we move on to the last part of this uh this interview where we we'll have about, to make a series yeah exactly where we talk about uh your writing so you mentioned sovereign with respect to uh personal data ownership but you're actually working on something called sov which stands for sovereign which is a, a new digital legal tender for the marshall islands I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And by the way, I just wanted to mention I was quite struck by how you, you live on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean and now you're working on a sovereign legal tender for an island in the middle of the Pacific. But I, I don't know why that struck me so much. But um, what what is the SOV uh, project and how did you get involved with that? Well, the SOV project is, uh, is very um, ambitious. While we have already witnessed some countries trying to make their own cryptocurrencies, um, they did so on uh, on very shaky grounds and with uh, with very um, doubtful uh, objectives and and some are outright uh, uh, failures without mentioning anyone in particular. Well, I'll mention Venezuela, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there one we know. <laughs> no, there are even more, but anyway, the the big problem here is that uh, um, cryptocurrencies. Um, it's good that you mentioned islands because I have this notion of the crypto or blockchain island. Right. Uh, I actually run, run a community which is called My Blockchain Island Club, an online community where I bring together people who are interested in the in the business of uh, of blockchain. And why is this word so important, island? Because the crypto space, the blockchain space, the cryptosphere, as I also like to call it, is an island. It's uh, it's existing in its own dimension. It's uh, it's not physical. We go back to the Tameflow notion of you know working within the domain of the invisible. The cryptosphere is invisible, but we human beings are material and we have our feet on the ground. So we need to build bridges between the new emerging um, economy in the cryptosphere and uh, and the real the real world. Um, now, the the original proponents of the Bitcoin, the cypherpunk, uh, crypto, anarchist, libertarians um, might have uh, a vision that that in practice is very very difficult to uh, to realize. Uh, why? Because uh, at the end of the day, we live in jurisdictions with laws, and we need public services in order to be able to 
to uh, like live a decent uh, uh, life in in a lawful manner. So, uh, what is the problem? These cryptocurrencies are cross jurisdictional and they are not subject to uh, to any sort of uh, of regulation. And uh, it is true that the cryptocurrencies, as such, in particular those that are aiming for complete anonymity like Monero and Zcash, uh, they cannot be regulated in no way. And, uh, and uh, it's uh, very clear in the eyes of the regulator that those cryptocurrencies will never be regulated, but they will also never become mainstream. They will not be the bridges between the cryptosphere and, uh, and the real world. And why are these bridges so important? That is a key question because, well, you mentioned it before, Len, because once we start having Internet of Things where you have microtransactions um, between autonomous self-driving um, physical entities which might be roaming uh, across organizational or jurisdictional boundaries, well, uh, we need something that looks very much like a blockchain to handle that kind of uh, of transaction. Identity, we mentioned digital identity. Well, we must start thinking in terms of identity of things and how do these things transact, especially if it's microtransactions uh, where the cost of transaction is so low that it would be uh, a non-profitable uh, proposition on the current payment networks. Uh, we would prevent the economy of things to develop. So in this light, we need something that is like a cryptocurrency, but which, um, which is uh, bridging that gap and that may exist in a regulated um, manner. The SOV project goes in that direction. There are huge um, uh, motivations for the Republic of the Marshall Islands to, to uh, embrace this, uh, this technology. Uh, and long story short, it's because the Marshall Islands have also been exposed to um, repeated uh, uh, nuclear experiments and bomb, bombing in the Bikini Island and the atoll of the Bikini Island. Um, the US has been paying uh, like a sort of damage for that for the last 50 years. And uh, in um, 2023, if I remember, remember correctly, uh, those payments will end and they are the equivalent of 30% of GDP. So imagine a nation that knows that in a few years, 30% of GDP will, uh, will disappear. It's, it's a wow. disaster that is coming. Not only that, but the Marshall Islands are, uh, you, you might try to look at some pictures on Google Maps, uh, they are literally... Uh, <laughs> small pebbles in the in the ocean uh, very very tiny pieces of land typically in, in the ring forms of an atoll and um, the elevation is uh, is uh, almost insignificant so what is the problem it is climate change and and uh, uh, rising of uh, of sea levels the country could literally be wiped out uh, in uh, in a few years or decades depending on how fast the seas will, will, will rise. So they are facing an economic crisis and they are uh, at the risk of being wiped out by, by climate uh, change. The idea is to create a currency and also a, 
possibly, and I, I put this like in parentheses because it would be the second phase, but possibly a whole infrastructure of uh, blockchain-based public services. So all the like the pensions, the the uh, the uh, registry of people, uh, um, insurance, and uh, and you name it would exist in the crypto space, so rather than in a database that. Uh, happens to be on a server on one of these islands that might be wiped uh, wiped out, and uh, uh, so that is the motivation for the solve from the perspective of the of the Marshall Islands. But uh, since it will leg- will have legal tender status, and the Marshall Islands uh, have a seat at the United Nations, this means that uh, this new cryptocurrency will also necessarily have to be exchanged on the forex. Uh, markets on the foreign forex exchange markets. So it will be an ideal on-off boarding of fiat currencies to cryptocurrencies. And that's where we like go full circle and we see that we might have a cryptocurrency that is used globally that can uh, address the issue of uh, uh, microtransactions that happen between uh, autonomous uh, vehicles, uh, uh, maybe owned by a DAO who becomes uh, a legal subject in Malta through legal personality, um, where the transactions um, have fees um, so low that they are not profitable for the normal payment networks. And at the same time, we are building the on-offboarding towards towards uh, the fiat currency world. So it's an extremely ambitious project. Don't ask me if we will manage to pull it off. I don't have the crystal sphere, but it's one of the most exciting things I've been involved with. It sounds, I mean, absolutely fascinating. Uh, and um, uh, thank you very much for sharing for that. Such an interesting story. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure we're all going to be following it very closely, uh, because I mean, it's the inter- the intersection of so many things from a form of colonialization, where one is nuclear testing on someone else's land, to uh, climate change, to the development of brand new currencies, to sort of that can be sort of automatically managed things like pensions. It's just such an incredible confluence of so many different things. It would it would normally be hard for me to know where to go next, except for reaching feature length in this interview. So I need to move on to the final. <laughs> final stage where I ask you about uh, writing. So to go from sort of 30,000 feet to three feet and a keyboard, um, you uh, decided to use LeanPub to publish books about Tame the Flow or Tame Flow. What uh, what led you to choose LeanPub as a platform for your self-publishing projects? Well, it was in the very early days. But by the way, when was LeanPub actually founded? I don't remember. 2010. It, uh, 2010, Right. And I think you came out of the world of Ruby, right? Uh, Ruby on Rails, maybe. Yeah. So that's um, right. Uh, yeah. So the one of LeanPub's co-founders, Peter Armstrong, had written a programming book on Ruby on Rails, um, and uh, it was and you know, he'd written a couple of books, and his his co-founder Scott had written written a computer programming book computer programming book as well. But basically, it was their experience writing computer programming books that could quickly become obsolete. That partially led them to the idea of, of LeanPub. Yeah, so I, I was keeping a keen eye on Ruby on Rails. I had many projects that uh, uh, were being developed on Ruby on Rails, client projects. I remember I was off the, the software engineering career at that point. But that's how I discovered 
about about LeanPub, and uh, it 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 made sense in uh, in in uh, so so many ways that when um, when I had jotted down my notes about what Tameflow was about and I was thinking about writing a book. I, I didn't even look for other options. It was just a natural choice uh, that that LeanPub would uh, would make it feasible for me to self-publish without having to go through the uh, the uh, well extra effort of dealing with uh, with uh, quote quote a real publisher uh, because I I have published books in 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 the past. Uh, on uh, on C++ and Delphi and, and other topics so I I know what it means to work with um, with a, a publisher and then of course I had the the experience that the first book I did with with Leapup then also became uh, of interest for a publisher who approached me and wanted to do it I thought okay maybe to get some some uh, some uh, bookshelf exposure uh, it might be it might be uh, worthwhile but thereafter, I've I've stuck to LeanPub, and all the things I'm working with are with um, with LeanPub right now. I am doing two books. One is the the book of blockchain strategies, which uh, where I like collect my ideas on on um, strategic uh, topics around the blockchain for businesses big and small. And the other one is the next one in the Tameflow series, which is Tame Your Workflow, where I delve a lot into how how the theory of constraints can be applied basically to the Kanban method. Um, it's interesting how I have also evolved my tool set because of the uh, increased need to collaborate with other people. You know, initially my first books, I wrote them uh, in, uh, believe it or not, in Vim directly, old programmer stuff. Um, and uh, the first edition was by dropping the files on, on on Dropbox and keeping my own my own my own versions with uh, with GitHub. Now the, these latest two books, because I have other authors who are not so keen on programming um, tools, we've been like testing the um, Google Docs. Uh, version that you you are supporting and i think you know i've i've been a good beta tester right yeah that so that leads me to my second last question so we save these very in the weeds questions for the very end of the interview um, <laughs> but uh um so you are an early adopter of our latest writing and publishing workflow which is using google docs which we're very excited about and we were very glad to have someone as um technically proficient and patient as you to to be there at the beginning not not not, not which is not to say that it doesn't work it works like a charm under most circumstances but it still has has the odd the odd issue which we're we're ironing out uh so so that's so that's interesting so i, I wanted to ask you so why did you choose to use the google docs approach and it sounds like collaboration was the reason yeah, exactly. Because with uh, with Google Docs, I, I could have uh, co-authors and and editors uh, uh, writing or making suggestions, comments, and uh, and corrections uh, with uh, with a tool which is uh, very, of course, very well known, and uh, which is not as intimidating as. Uh, as a plain text uh, text editor and uh, and uh, mark markdown, which yeah. 
from a programmer's perspective is is quite natural and and easy but uh, for someone who has absolutely no programming experience whatsoever but maybe just uh, i don't know someone who's doing like a, a an english language uh, review of uh, of uh, of the book uh, obviously that that would be an, an unnecessary torture to put them through so. yeah that's 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 actually one of the reasons we're we're so excited about having the ability to make books using Google Docs through LeanPub uh, is that, you know, we know that our, our origins are in, you know, computer programmers writing computer programming books. But for a lot of people, you know, when they hear like they hear a word like Vim or they hear a word like Markdown and they're like, what the hell do I have to get a degree in to type out some words and make a book? Yeah, uh, well, actually, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Per personally, I, I'm in when writing, I'm. I'm much more productive using uh, using Vim, and, and um, that's uh, that's a fact. And uh, it's, it's that uh, uh, finger memory that's that's just so sticky and so productive that comes comes to fruition. But of course, if if you have to to write with with someone else uh, across the globe, by the way, uh, my co-author Daniel Baron of the last Tameflow book is in Canada as well. So uh, <laughs> we are literally across uh, across the, the Atlantic pond. Um, <laughs> when uh, when you have to collaborate with some someone uh, which uh, uh, has no previous experience or doesn't want to to learn or cannot learn uh, these tools, then uh, something like Google Docs makes makes perfectly perfectly sense. And you know, I can just encourage you to to pursue that and to make it as as good as possible because I think that will also broaden the potential adoption to to uh, non-technical writers and uh, and make your business thrive even more yeah that's 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 definitely our goal so my last question uh, and I always like to close out the podcast with this this question is if there was one thing we could build for you on lean pub or one thing we could fix for you can you think of anything that you would ask us to do um well, there would be many things on this wish list, but <laughs> <laughs> one area which is particularly painful, uh, no matter if it's if it's in the Markdown or the Google Doc, I think it's the support for uh, for uh, tables, uh, tables with the right right options for formatting them in, in all possible uh, ways. Um, that 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 single feature alone i think would be uh very very valuable uh of course given that you write books with tables then it's valuable some 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 books are just text and then it's it's not a problem yeah thank thank you very much for uh, registering that interest in in tables i mean we do we do have you know support for tables in lean pub flavored markdown and 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 we're we're sort of completing the implementation of the markua specification which is our sort of like you know, yeah. new new approach to uh, writing books in plain text. Where for anyone listening, you know, if you're writing in plain text and you want to do, you want the output of what you're typing to have formatting, you kind of have to type in the instructions for what you want the formatting to be. In the olden days, what you would do is you would underline text on a typewriter to indicate to the publisher that you wanted it to be in italics. Now you can imagine you were imagine the same challenge but you want what you're typing to come out as a table <laughs> that's that's what steve is talking about and so we do we do plan on having pretty robust uh support for that in markua we we currently do have relatively robust support for that 
in LeanPub flavored Markdown. With respect to Google Docs, you can, I mean, I'm sure you can imagine the challenge of taking what Google Docs, whatever Google decides it wants its sort of, you know, binary code to be to represent tables in Google Docs, having us translate that into a table is, you know, its own its own particular challenge. But we do understand that it's it tables are for people who need books with tables, tables are very important. Um and it's something that we'll definitely think about supporting going forward. Yeah, I think maybe one one easy uh, way would also be to in a Google Doc that you also have the option to sort of to escape back to to Markdown Marku or whatever. So if you if you have that capability in your engine, uh, but uh, you can't get it like out of the Google Docs, you could literally write write it uh, in a some form of escaped or parenthesized form indirectly. That's really interesting. I mean, I know I know it. There's there's some tricks there. There's some tricky things there, but that's a very good that's a very good idea uh, and something that we could think about because there are different. Basically, there are different document formats that can be used in Google Drive. And so it's possible that there's something interesting that we could do with that going forward. Um, thank you. Thank you for uh, ending the interview with a challenge. Uh, we, we appreciate challenges. <laughs> and thank you uh, very much for uh, doing this interview and for uh, being so game for such a, a wide-ranging discussion. Uh, I really appreciated it. And even even if it wasn't necessarily all that coherent, I think everything we talked about was in itself uh, quite interesting. So thank you very much, Steve, for being on the Front Matter podcast and for being a LeanPub author. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you to all of uh, the LeanPub team. I think what you're doing is you know, an exceptional product and service. Thank you. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review and like it wherever you found it, especially in iTunes. It really does help. And if you're interested in becoming a LeanPub author yourself, please visit our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.